Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week we're turning to an old name who's been in the news a lot lately, one Tony Blair. A couple of weeks ago I wrote a big profile of the former Prime Minister and his new project, the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. My piece came out after Blair had hosted his new and pretty glitzy Future of Britain conference, where he seemed to anoint the new Labour leader, Keir Starmer, as his rightful successor, 16 years after he left office. But Tony Blair's new Labour was a project of the 1990s. We are now living in very different political times. The question we're going to be talking about this week is, why can Keir Starmer not be Tony Blair? And what does it say about today's politics that Tony Blair is nonetheless back influencing the Labour Party. Tony Blair, Labour's man, addressing an audience of 23 last night. I don't actually think it's a matter of right and left as people make it out. What I do think is that it's a matter of style. He is the most talked about politician of his generation. They've called him everything, from Bambi to union basher, from public opinion quarter to autocrat. Look, it's actually quite a short time you've got, so you better get on, you better get things done. But if we have done well, then I know what this is a vote for. It is a vote for the future. It is a vote for an end to division. Good evening. Tony Blair was carried into Downing Street today on a political landslide. Building and rebuilding the peace process is a Sinn Féin priority. I'm sure it will be the new government's priority also. That there is an end to violence for good on the part of Republicans and loyalists alike. On Tuesday night, I gave the order for British forces to take part in military action in Iraq. I've been Prime Minister of this country for just over 10 years. And sometimes the only way you conquer the pull of power is to set it down. So, Tom, I think that it's pretty clear that Tony Blair came to the Labour Party leadership in 1994 with the idea that he was in some sense going to revolutionise the party or at least give it a rebirth. The whole notion of new Labour rests on that there was old Labour and that was over and 
Tony Blair and the people around him represented new Labour. And I think if we think about it now, what new Labour looks like in retrospect is perhaps not quite the same as what it looked like in the middle of the 1990s. Mm. In the middle of the 1990s, a lot of it was about internal reforms within the Labour Party and most famously perhaps getting rid of Clause 4. I think when I look at it now, I think about it in terms of having this really strange mixture between being technocratic, constant emphasis on delivery, what practically works, and at the same time, weirdly populist. Yeah, There's a lot, particularly in the first term, of the language of the people and the will of the people. There's a bit actually in the manifesto from 1997 where Blair, speaking actually quite in a personal capacity at the beginning, says, New Labour is the political arm of none other than the British people as a whole. I don't think that's the language that Blair talks now and certainly not the language I don't think that in a way that Starmer's going to talk. But So how do you think that we should understand that tension between the technocratic and the populist? And we'll come back to what that might mean now the, in the latter part of our discussion in terms of Blair himself, Tony Blair, that individual who became leader of the Labour Party in 1994. Yeah, he embodies both of those strands, doesn't he? He has the kind of the charisma that, that is necessary in a populist leader and, and perhaps what we'll come on to discuss that Keir Starmer doesn't have himself and that belief that he can connect with the people, you know, in quotes, directly in, in a way that others can't. And yet at the same time, the things that seem to drive him are very practical and technocratic. Uh, and so I think you can see that in his career before he becomes Labour leader. So we'll just quickly wind it back in. Blair is born in Glasgow, has a bit of a childhood where he's moving around all over the place. So he he spends some time in Australia. He comes back to the UK. He then ends up in Durham, where his father who is an academic, takes a post at Durham University. And that's his lifelong connection with with Durham. I think where you start to see what kind of drives Blair is at university and then in the years after that. So at university, he is reading Trotsky. He's reading biographies of Trotsky that he will talk about throughout the rest of his life as affecting him. But I think the, the key is his relationship that he strikes up with an Anglican priest who's very influential on how he thinks. And he talks about it later in, in John Rental's book, uh, Biography on Tony Blair. This priest called Peter Thompson, Blair would say, until he met Thompson, he had always believed in God, but he had become slightly detached from it. Uh, and in Blair's words, I couldn't make sense of it. Peter made it relevant, practical rather than theological. Religion becomes less of a personal relationship with God. I began to see it in a much more social context. And I think this is the kind of key to thinking about what what really drives Blair and what he and how he thinks about politics. I would say it's almost quite conservative from quite an, an early age, really, in, in that he's it's it's not about grand structures or Marxist theology. It's about practical ways of changing things. And that will continue to influence how Blair thinks about it all the way till today. But it's combined with this charisma, this, this you know, this, this is a guy who is at the front of a rock band at university as, you know, wanted to be Mick Jagger and these kind of things. So it's this strange combination of the practical... Christian socialism 
and the charisma of somebody who wants to be a star. Yeah, I think he does want to be a charismatic hero. I think that is part of what the attraction to Trotsky is. In uh, There's an interview in which he's talking about reading this biography of Trotsky and he says it was like a light going on. Yeah. Um, and in the, and it's because he's captivated, I think, by the personality of Trotsky and what he sees as, as someone, I mean, I think his understanding of the Russian Revolution is a bit off here and saying that Trotsky went out and created a re- Russian Revolution and um, changed the world. But the idea of this man with a cause and being able to play out that commitment to a cause on a grand stage, yeah, I think that, that is pretty fundamental um, to um, who Blair is. And individual people can change things through their, the force of their personality. I mean, that's, yeah. what, that's what lots of sort of great men think. It is. But the interesting thing then is, if we look at where this lands him in the Labour Party after he's won his seat in Sedgefield in 1983, he enters Parliament in Neil Kinnock's Labour Party. And Neil Kinnock is fighting this battle to move the party away from the left-wing manifesto in which it had fought in the 1983 general election. And a lot of then, I think, who Blair becomes, or at least how he appears, as he later gets into Kinnock's shadow cabinet, I can't remember the exact year in which he starts the trading industry in which he he starts um, off, is, is that he's not particularly, I think, trying to be a flashy orator that was the obvious space in a way for the charismatic personality in that Labour Party. He is, I think at this point, trying to be the more, the technocrat. Right. Well, I think he's also playing the political game, isn't he? Um, a little bit like how, you know, Thatcher is just an extremely good political actor. She's a great politician. Blair is a very good politician that he is able to sort of weave his way through the House of Commons. In a biography, uh, of Michael Foote, I came across this letter that Blair wrote to him in 1982, just before he comes in. So this is the Labour Party that is pro-nuclear disarmament. It is anti-European. It wants to leave the EC. So this is the Labour Party that Blair is actively choosing to join and to stand to represent in the 1980s. And Blair writes to Foote directly. He's not yet a Labour MP. And it's slightly cloying in in how he's sort of praising the Labour leader. It's obviously a ploy to help his political prospects. And he he's talking about one of Foote's books, and he's he's praising him and saying how disappointing it is to look at the current Conservative government at that time and how narrow their source of political inspiration is. He writes, look at Thatcher and Tebbit and how they almost take pride in the rigid populism of their political thought. There is a new and profoundly unpleasant Tory abroad. The Tory party is now increasingly given over to the worst of petty bourgeois sentiments. And so you've got the sort of the Marxist language in there. But you've also got that at populism already. But of course, this is the irony that we're going to get into. This Going at petty bourgeois sentiments is what New Labour would be all about and what Blair would be criticised most for doing, for giving over to those sentiments. He was the best Labour leader at appealing to those very same sentiments. Yeah, a good part of what the New Labour project was about, certainly on the surface, in terms of its presentation to to aspirational voters, as Blair thought about them, is we're on your side. Old Labour wasn't on your side. Old Labour was... Michael Foote, who who did think that you, or in Blair's casting of it, did think that your 
you know, tastes were problematic or yes. that you should be more ascetic or more morally serious. We understand your aspirations. We understand your material aspirations and we're not going to do anything that's threatening yeah. to them. And in that sense, Blair wanted to accept what he thought of as a pretty significant part of the reforms that the Thatcher government had made. Yeah. Not least, I'd say, on trade unions, on privatisation. The the bit where Blair presented himself and what New Labour was doing as being different, radically different by the end, I think, than what the Conservative governments had done with Thatcher and Major was the promise of competence. That was the central critique, I think, that was being made. And that is a, a, a technocratic critique in that sense, is like, they didn't know how to run the economy. They didn't know how to run a globalized economy. They didn't have the knowledge or the understanding of how the world works in order to yeah. do it. They didn't understand that you need the Bank of England to be independent, which right. is obviously one of the first moves that Gordon Brown made after yeah. the 1997 um, general election. But I still think that it's really striking that at that point in the late 90s, that the two strands of the technocratic approach, all about delivery, about saying, look, we don't need to have a political contest about what the ends are. We all agree about that. We just need the most efficient means. And we, the Labour Party, understand what or new Labour understand what modern means are in this modern world in which we live. That goes hand in hand with this really quite strong language about the will of the people. Yeah. The servants of the people. Yeah. Remember, I think that's in yeah. Blair's yeah. speech on after winning the election in 97 which 97. boris johnson then apes in, in 2019 when he goes back to sedgefield he copies blair's speech which he makes the same point. yeah and then using diana's death the people's princess yeah and also the many versus a few is quite a common sort of trope during the early blair years yeah. the idea that the conservative party represents an elite that's out of touch with the people of britain and at that time i don't think that blair would have thought that there was any real tension between those two things. Now, in our today, through today's politics, they look like poles apart from each other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And the, 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 there's another strand to Blairism and the, and the way Blair thinks it's that this sort of prophetic idea that he can see the future. What is modern are these technocratic changes that need to happen to the state. Uh, and so a core part of, of, of new laborism is both reforming the labor party itself. So he inherits this momentum away from the left that had begun with Kinnock and then had continued with John Smith, who then dies, um, in 1994, which creates this opportunity for Blair to take on the labor leadership. And he continues those reforms. It's not like that they come out of the blue. This had been happening for a while. One member, one vote had been something that John Smith had pushed and Blair took it further. He'd see it sort of taken it to what he would see as sort of logical conclusion, um, getting rid of clause four being this sort of emblematic moment. And that was the future. And, and then he, he applies the same logic almost to the state itself once he becomes prime minister in 1997. So you have Bank of England independence. A lot of the early reforms that would be most lasting are constitutional. So there'd be devolution to Scotland then you'd have a Good Friday Agreement, which is Human a Rights Act. Human Rights Act. You also change the electoral system 
for European elections, bringing PR into British politics for the first time, which actually creates, opens the door to Nigel Farage to be elected and Nick Clegg actually in the first European elections after that change. So you have a lot of these reforms that are going on. The, the, the Good Friday Agreement itself, which is his great sort of personal triumph, I, I think, is also quite a radical constitutional change, really re-establishing a completely different Northern Ireland to the one that existed before within a different UK. A lot of these reforms are things that he is actually a little bit uncertain about and and worried about. So he has concerns about devolution. He has concerns about the Freedom of Information Act that later come about, about PR. It's at the same time that he's flirting with the idea of... um, some kind of coalition with the Lib Dems, but that doesn't, that doesn't happen. So you get this tension very early on between his reforming side, his instincts and his conservative instincts, which are actually a lot of these things he doesn't, he doesn't agree with. The one thing that is, that is real and he feels passionately is, is about Europe though. Yeah. Well, I think that I would say go take that point a little bit further. And to say that there is a really sharp distinction, I think, between foreign policy, Blair, and I'm including European Union question yeah. in foreign policy, um, here for the moment anyway, uh, and domestic Blair. Yeah. Because whilst he's got this language about national renewal and new national uh, energy, which looks like it's focused on domestic policy, and, and after all, he's saying in the manifesto that education was the Conservatives' biggest failure and the mantra of what the priorities were going to be was education, education, education. Ask me my three main priorities for government. And I tell you, education, education and education. In practice, he was leaving this stuff either to Gordon Brown on a lot of things or to Blunkett, I would say, on the education question. If you say, well, what's taking his energy, his personal energy, it's foreign policy. And I'd say that you can see it really clearly in the Kosovo war, where you might say he almost thinks he's found his purpose. But I think that what's really striking, because it so matters for what's going to come later, is that he really wants to reset um, United Kingdom's relationship with the European Union, or United Kingdom's membership, I should say, of the European Union. He knows that it's not really possible, I think, to move on the single currency question, that he's always going to run into Gordon Brown. And the referendum. On that. I think for a while, perhaps in the second term, he thinks that he can push. But the thing I think he wants to do is to go a different way at resetting the relationship, which is via the security question, to try to give the European Union a common security policy. Yeah. And the, the way to do that, he thinks, and in, I think to begin with, he actually begins to succeed at this is through France. Yeah. Because the, the British and the French matter the most in security terms at that time within the European Union. And he reaches an agreement with back and his then Prime Minister, Lionel um, Jospin, the, what's called the San Marlo Declaration, which is a commitment of intensified British-French security cooperation. And Blair's hope, and I think Chirac's then as well, is that that is going to be the basis of a much deeper common security and defence policy that might even start to provide some alternative to NATO, not necessarily opposed to NATO, but at least a bit more load-bearing in relation to NATO than the previous status quo 
had been. I think there's even one point where George Robertson, I think he's his defence secretary at the time, says this is going to mean less reliance on the United States. And because Blair's doing this at a time when the Franco-German relationship is not in a particularly good state, I think leading up to 2001, so leading up to 9-11, that he's actually quite optimistic that, yeah. that this is that this is going to work. But it's really striking, I think, because of the fact that none of this is particularly amenable to the technocratic side of him. In a way, and you could see this over Kosovo, that he wanted to play, that that was a space where he thought he could be the charismatic hero, not necessarily the populist Well, in a sense, hero. he was. I guess, yep. in Kosovo. It's very hard to think about later Blair without thinking of Kosovo, Sierra Leone, you know, all these kids being called Tony Blair in the Balkans. Hello, uh, my name is uh, Tony Blair. My name is Blair. My name is Blair Thaci. My name is Tony Blair. My name is Tony Blair. How can they not have a profound impact on how you think about things? Running up to 2011, of course, you know, there are cartoons being drawn of him where he's walking on water, you know, because he's Good Friday Agreement has come about. He's done, he's done the reforms, the devolution reforms. He's, you know, he's got a 180 seat majority. He's talking about leading in Europe and going to these summits and cycling on ahead of the, these sort of older European leaders. And he looks like this sort of vigorous new face of European politics, obviously the sort of the European Clinton or the British Clinton. And what he's trying to do in Europe is to get Britain into the engine room, isn't it? That it would no longer be a Franco-German engine in Europe, but it would Britain would be in there too. And he thinks he can achieve it, as you say, through security, because he can't do it through the single currency. But I, I think you can see the grand strategy and his relationship with people like Roy Jenkins going back to the 70s, who, who he, I think he's probably most similar to in his instincts. But it's sort of fundamentally flawed. It's not just that it falls apart for reasons that are beyond his control. Like there is a fundamental tension. That is, is it even possible to break into that relationship? Well, I think that's what we're going to talk to after the break, isn't it? Is where does it start going wrong for Blair? And I think we're going to start by saying that it starts going wrong actually over the Europe question, but that is really bound up with Iraq. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The full horror of what has happened in the United States earlier today is now becoming clearer. It is hard even to contemplate 
the utter carnage and terror which has engulfed so many innocent people. So the great pivotal moment, really, of Blair's premiership is September 11th, 2001. So he's won re-election at this point, another enormous landslide. I mean, we talk about, say, Boris Johnson's landslide of 80 seats. That's not even a landslide. <laughs> Blair was winning a majority of 100 more than that. These are extraordinary figures. I remember pieces at the time, you know, is the Conservative Party over? Is it finished? Could it, will it ever come back to power again? And it really does look like he can walk on water. And then September 11th happens. And you can say, you can trace a lot of um, the problems that are to come from that moment. I think, though, that that is a slightly misleading story, isn't it, Alex? So that, that is a pivotal moment in that Afghanistan and Iraq obviously follow from that, and which he will, really, Iraq, he'll never recover from. But there were problems, tensions, things that were going wrong already before that. Yeah, I think that what's striking here is that Blair seems to see 9-11 as it happens, almost as an opportunity. Yeah. He thinks that the world can be remade. Yeah. And it almost seems to excite him. And again, I think that's the man who wants to play on the world stage in this yep. charismatic um Shape, shape it with his will and his vision. And, absolutely. And yeah. um, I think that he it's almost like to begin with that it means that the kind of things he was saying – after Kosovo, a, a more internationalised humanitarian kind of politics, that he, he wants to fit 9-11 into that narrative. Yeah, this comes after his Chicago speech. Yeah, right, absolutely. Where it, where... And he thinks, I think, that it will mean that it will be easier for him to run this, I can reset the UK's membership of the European Union, i.e. put it in the important as France and Germany within the, the European Union via security. Yeah. There's the, the Afghanistan war, actually the United States' main military partners within European Union over that are going to be obviously the UK, France and Germany. And then there's this EU summit at Ghent, I think it was. And quite often, obviously, before these summits, historically, that the French and the Germans would engage in bilateral talks. And Blair gets to go to, effectively, the pre-summit summit. Yep. And it's very much presented as a threesome. And these are the, the three European Union countries that are going to be deciding like, how the European Union is going to engage in the post-9-11 um, um, world. But it really antagonizes quite a number of other European governments, particularly the Italian government, but the Spanish, also the European um, Commission. And Blair, I think, sort of trying to be that person who can build bridges as he's thinking of it in his mind, tries to then, I think he has some dinner where he tries to invite some people who Chirac and Jacques Chirac, the French president, and Schroeder, the German chancellor, don't really want to be there. Yeah. And then that's kind of really the end, I think. Of, of the three-way meetings before these uh, EU summits. And this is before we've even got to Iraq. Now, obviously, Iraq, as we're going to come to in a moment, is really draw a line that puts Chirac and Schroeder, the French and the Germans, on one side of the line and Blair and the British on the other side of the line. But I think it's notable the way in which his grand European strategy, so to speak, 
runs quite quickly after 9-11 into this headwind. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I look back at it and I just think it was doomed from the start because security is not enough to get into the engine room of the European Union. And I think he knows that as well. That's why he's so keen on the euro. I don't think he sees the euro principally as an economic tool. It's a political tool. And in a sense, I think he's absolutely right that this is the the central logic of uh, Britain's membership of the EU. Like, Do you want influence or do you want independent sovereignty? And if you want influence in Europe, you have to give up some of the sovereignty to get in there and make collective decisions. And if you're not in the euro, you have a watered down membership. That is the, that is the fundamental problem of where Britain's European membership got to after Maastricht. And Blair, Blair knew that. I mean, it obviously doesn't become clear until Cameron's veto that wasn't a veto in 2011. And we've talked about this a, a bit before. But Blair sees that and wants to get in there. But he's trying to get in another way through his charisma, through security, through other mechanisms. But there is a fundamental problem. And he's, despite his charisma, despite his his landslide, or in spite of those things, rather, he doesn't have the power to be able to get into the euro because it requires a referendum, a commitment he made in 1997 under pressure from Jimmy Goldsmith's referendum party and John Major having agreed agreed to it. So he can't get there. Like His populist touch isn't able to produce the sort of technocratic solution that he wants to these grand strategic dilemmas that he sees. He sees the future of Britain being in Europe, but he can't get there. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a really interesting question as to whether there is a contingency here of things playing out in a in a different direction because I think there is a way of reading it which would say that Blair up the ante on the single currency question with Brown who was committed to these five treasury tests that obviously were always never designed to be met yeah um if things had worked out differently on the foreign policy side because I think that this is where the Iraq issue really does come into in terms of European politics. Because if we go back to like the early part of 2002, and remember that this question about whether to go to war with Iraq played on for quite a long time. It was quite a a slow burn issue. And that it's only really in the summer of 2002 that the Germans, um, Gerhard Schroeder being the German chancellor at the time, social democratic um, chancellor, that he really moves out into a position of outright opposition to a war against Iraq to to remove um, Saddam Hussein from power. He does so during the course of that, as I recall anyway, during the course of the German ele- general election. And at that point, Chirac and Blair's position are not really so different from each other, I think. And I think it's what's really notice- noticeable, though, is, is at the end of that, so I think it's September, the German election, is that, Schroeder heads to Paris, meets with Chirac, and that they seem to patch up a new agreement between themselves. And their relations had actually been pretty poor prior. And why I think what we see from that point on is that Chirac gets on board with Schroeder about opposing Iraq, certainly without any second UN resolution. And Schroeder gets on board with Chirac about not reforming the common agricultural policy. And in the aftermath of that, so about, I don't know, sometime in that autumn, maybe October, either late September or October, 
Chirac and Blair have a blistering row that leads to Chirac cancelling one of these regular Franco-British summits that I think have come out of the San Marlo Declaration. So bad is the argument between mm. them. And and that, I think, from that point on, then Blair's, we can do this, meaning this being the reset via security, is really over. But I think that you could still say it's contingent in the sense like, say Chirac had actually decided not to oppose the Iraq war. Because if you go back to the 90s, it's true that the French had pulled out of the air operations in the Gulf that had begun after the first Gulf War. But for quite some time, the British and the French are allied with the US about patrolling from the air, the yeah. Persian Gulf, and, and then the French um, pull out from that. I'm not sure it's a complete given that the French have to go the way in which yeah, I mean, they do. If you think about Syria, in, in later years, the French are more hawkish on this than Obama or and then, and then the French, the British and the French uh, on Libya are in the same position and the Germans against the Libya intervention. So, I, I mean, I'm not saying that I necessarily think it's a, a definite contingency, but I think we could at least think about whether actually that this period plays out a little bit differently and that something that that Blair's contribution or whatever we want to think about it to the European question plays out in a different way. I guess, I mean, when we had the episode with Dominic Sambrook and and we talked about various contingencies of the 1970s, you know, had Heath won, would would the special relationship have finished? And he said something along the lines of roads not taken are not taken for reasons often. And I wonder whether... That's the case here in that the contingencies of whether France might have joined Britain and the US or whether Blair may have gone with Schroeder and Chirac and actively chosen Europe rather than the United States if this pivotal moment may have changed British history. I mean, perhaps those roads weren't taken because there was a kind of fundamental weakness in what he was trying to do. You know, somebody somebody later talked about Blair as being the sort of the last British imperialist, which I... It just always struck me as quite uh, insightful in that he believes in his own power to influence people and Britain's power to still influence people and do good in the world. You know, Kosovo, Sierra Leone, these kind of things. And he continues to believe that and he continues to think that Britain can play this role as a, as the bridge. And yet when it comes to the crunch, he cannot shape European policy. He can't bring Europe with Britain to America and he can't bring America really to Europe you know so 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 Britain's Britain's actually exposed at that moment you know he can't he can't influence the White House ultimately it's similar to when Cameron tried it and and I think it comes back to using security to get into the engine room of Europe is bound to fail because ultimately Europe's security is guaranteed not by Europe but by America yeah I think we should though throw into this that actually the European Union is actually really divided way beyond the new Europe yeah way beyond the Franco-German yeah British issue at this point the East European countries particularly Poland strongly in favor of the American action as is the Spanish and the Italian government certainly when by the time that Berlusconi is becomes prime minister but what I think the has to face is is that you can't change Britain's position within the European Union with an alliance with the Spanish and the Italian Exactly. It was Aznar, wasn't it? Aznar and Berlusconi. That isn't good. But the, the French and the Germans were in a way, I wouldn't say they were out on a limb, but there was a definite like structural division within the, the European Union. But the fact that the French and the Germans were on the same side and the British were on the other side of that 
obviously become pretty significant. Yeah. And as we've seen with Brexit, the core reality of the EU is that Britain is not an existential member. Britain can leave the EU and the EU survives. In a sense, almost any other country can leave the EU and the EU will survive, but Germany cannot and neither can France. I think there's, that could be an interesting episode to have. I think that we should just, though, for a moment anyway, talk about the domestic fallout of this, because this is crucial, I think, to the defeat of the new Labour project domestically. And it has real consequences for how it is possible for, in the end, Jeremy Corbyn to become Labour Party leader. And that is, is that Iraq, the Iraq war really wrecks Blair's credibility within the Labour Party itself. And I think crucially, it means that he cannot hand the Labour Party over to anyone he was going to choose as a successor. Now, you could argue that was never going to happen because there was the looming figure of Gordon Brown. But if we if we skip on to the 2010 Labour leadership election, so after the defeat at the 2010 general election, and you essentially have this contest between these a group of special advisors, some of whom had worked for Blair, some of whom had worked for Brown, I think probably Andy Burnham had worked for somebody else. But if you think of it as the two Miliband brothers plus Ed Balls and the Blair one, David Miliband, he was completely hampered in that by the Iraq war. Yeah. And that Ed Miliband was able to say that he'd oppose yeah, the, the last time we we'll make this comparison with well, Ed Miliband and Barack Obama. Yeah, you know? <laughs> no, but it's really, but we talked about this obviously when we were talking uh, in the Biden episode about the way in which the, the rat war is such a watershed within the Democratic Party. It means that nobody, it's very difficult for anybody 2008 to win unless they've got some anti war. Yeah. And um, it's still playing out even when Hillary Clinton comes back. Yeah. You know, and it, and it really, Trump is able and to it really matters in terms of, I would say it matters in terms of that 2010 one. It also matters, I think, in terms of the 2016 one, in terms of who can challenge Jeremy Corbyn, you know, when there's that parliamentary vote of confidence against him. Is it going to be someone who was against the Iraq war? Because otherwise they're not going to stand a chance. And the fact that both the morality of the war and the competence of the war really come into profound question after the initial victory and then as Iraq descends into civil war, particularly in in 2005, I think also just blows apart Blair as the politician of competence. It's not a technocratic war, is it, by any stretch of the imagination. It just can't be cast in in those terms. No, and then we should should turn to this, what, what comes after Tony Blair leaves office. So he leaves in 2007. And so you've had, you know, domestic reforms really led by Gordon Brown to a large degree. And then foreign policy has blown up by, by 2007. So Tony Blair's leaving, but he's leaving before the great financial crisis that comes just after he leaves. And I think it's very difficult to look back at Blair's record that those 10 years and not have this, like, asterisk somehow put over the premiership because it just 2007 sort of blows up the settlement that new labor was built on you said right at the start of this episode 
that everybody agrees on the mean. Everyone agrees on the ends, just the means that we, we differ over. And New Labour was almost this political settlement about the means. It's like, yes, we'll have a free market sort of Thatcherite economy and we'll redistribute the the wealth around the country and into public services to a large extent. We'll spend more on public services. That is the New Labour settlement. And a lot of that is profits from the city. And boom, in 2007, that goes. So from that moment on, you can't have new labor. New labor is impossible to exist after 2007, 2008. Hello and welcome. Thousands of Northern Rock savers have queued for hours at branches to empty their accounts. Many more have withdrawn cash via the internet. For 36 hours now, they've been told their money is absolutely safe. The Bank of England would not have lent us any money if we were in an unstable financial position. It's as simple as that. So, Tom, we got to 2007, I think more precisely the summer of 2007, when the financial crash first began. Northern Rock, actually. Yeah, Interestingly, interesting, back in the yeah, northeast, absolutely. Uh, in fact, those northern banks in which New Labour had been quite keen on, particularly Gordon Brown and Scottish banks, for that matter, yeah. quite <laughs> central to the that, particularly the first part of the financial crash. And Blair's out of office. Uh, he'd been really accelerated out of office, really, by a foreign policy question, which was around the, Israel's yeah. invasion of Lebanon. That's right. Yeah, yeah. but. What we see, I think, from the summer of 2007, certainly by the autumn of 2008, is that there's a lot more emphasis on distributional politics, on who's getting what income-wise, who the state is supporting, why is the state bailing out these banks that have behaved in these reckless and perhaps immoral ways. And there's a lot of anger coming out. And that will move in a way a little bit later from the realm of the banks to the realm of politicians because of the expenses scandal. And so that sense of really quite intense public anger that's being flung at politicians and in some sense at financial elites, if we can use that language, is not something that's really there. There's one caveat to the intense anger that we're going to come back to. But generally, as you said, that Blair has kept it, it, foreign policy questions aside, particularly Iraq aside, he's kept it focused on means and, and what you do with the benefits of growth. And that's changed economically. The world economy is just really beginning to become really quite different. And democratic politics is going to take place, therefore, in a different space with much more political anger. And that, I think, allied with the difficulties that David Miliband has with Iraq war, is why we end up with Ed Miliband as Labour leader in 2010. And then when you get the contest, we get the contest again in 2015, the Labour leadership is going to be won by Jeremy Corbyn, of all people. Now, if we just went back in time, I think, and said to Blair, let's say in his peak in September of 2001, look, the inheritor in the end of the new Labour project is going to be Jeremy Corbyn. I think he would have thought that we'd gone off into a like a parallel universe that, it, that he couldn't recognise. It would have just seemed absurd. But that raises some really, like, really interesting questions then about like how has Blair then got himself back, in some sense, into British politics, given the Iraq thing and the way in which his money-making activities have gone on since he left office, but also back to influencing the Labour Party. Because I think 
given all the things that we've been talking about, we can see that the conditions of a new labour-like project just don't exist any longer. And yet Blair seems to be talking much the same language as he was back in the 1997 manifesto. Yeah, he's talking about sort of radical but effective, which I think were, were the words in the 1997 election. If you speak to anybody in the Tony Blair Institute now, they'll say you, you're in a meeting with him and he'll say, what we need is radical policies, but effective ones, you know, and often actually they end up with neither. They're not particularly radical. They're quite boringly technocratic solutions. You know, we should reform the planning laws or we should have digital IDs or those kind of things. You know, these are fairly mainstream centrist ideas. And often they don't really come about because they're not populist enough. They don't have a popular appeal. So I, th I think going back to this, this idea that you had at the start about understanding Blair as both populist and technocratic, what the Tony Blair Institute is in a way is that, but without the populism. It's just the technocratic solution. He has this consultancy arm within the Tony Blair Institute that advises governments around the world on how to how to be more effective. And in a way, it's often what you should do is create the Downing Street that I created in power with a, with a policy unit, a strategic communications unit, a delivery unit, all of these things. And it's about if we can just make governments more effective, then, you know, solutions could be fixed and the world will be a better place. And they now, obviously, those people who support supported Tony Blair and continue to sort of long for somebody like Tony Blair, they would rail against the populism that followed his departure, particularly Brexit, obviously. But that just misses that fundamental element of what New Labourism was all about, what Blairism was all about. It, it was necessary to have that element of populism, just as it was necessary for Margaret Thatcher to have an element of populism. If you don't have that, you don't get elected in modern politics. And for good reason, though, it shouldn't just be dismissed. Populism to actually appeal to the populace is not some kind of horrible thing that you shouldn't touch. That's a necessary part of democratic politics. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two different things here, isn't there, in terms of like certainly what Starmer can do in this space. Yeah. First of all, he can't play charismatic hero. He's just not set up to do that. And the second thing being the fact that the word populism, not one I'm usually keen on, I'm using it more as a shorthand here in terms of what happened in like 2016, is, is that now instead of really the reaction of someone like Tony Blair to 2016, meaning not just the, the Brexit shock in the United Kingdom, but Trump shock in the United States, being that we need to try and understand where that anger's coming from and in some sense be more responsive to it, which is really the position that Boris Johnson took. I mean, because in some sense he was as much part of the the old political world prior to 2016 as anybody else that's leveling up was yeah effectively. Ab absolutely yeah and in a way it's in a very different space i know we've talked about this when we talked about biden it's green new deal in the united states yeah too which is to try to address essentially the class economic anger and try to address the consequences of globalization you could think about new labor as like leveling up leveling with a massive investment in public services except for the fact obviously that new labor was very much into embracing the global like world economy um 
but I think that what we can see now is is then that Blair and that position, the centrist position that he represents, is like no, actually we need to double down on the technocracy. We just need it to do it much better. The technocracy versus populism. Yeah, no. that is it, absolutely. They don't go together. Now, you could argue, I think that actually that perhaps that they do in more subtle ways. So there's a little bit of this, I think, I think we've talked about this before in Macron. I think that swinging both ways on this, but hasn't particularly worked out very well for Macron, I would say. But I think in British politics, perhaps because of Brexit, that they do look like you go one way or the other. And what has Blair has done is to choose technocracy. And in a way, the fact that he's done it from a position where he is as, let's say, committed to as money-making activities that he is actually fuels a critique that you can make against that, which isn't, it isn't just technocratic. It looks oligarchic as well. When I was looking into the Tony Blair Institute, people would talk about um, when it began in 2016, uh, interestingly enough, uh, the Tony Blair Institute was a sort of an amalgamation of all the previous charities and business interests that he had. He brought them all together and into this one institution as part of that he created a policy unit a sort of think tank but prior to that he created this unit full of smart people mostly from the sort of progressive center or left that was thinking about how to renew the center and this was obviously tony blair's great drive and actually it didn't really succeed didn't work i mean evidently it didn't work but this is what became the policy unit that is now quite influential and influential in the Labour Party and in British politics generally. And Renew in the Centre actually was divided between those who thought, well, we need to respond to 2016 and the financial crisis and the anger, and we need to somehow renew the centre left as they saw it and re- and renew that kind of politics. And those who thought actually know it's the centre versus the populists on the left and the right. So it's, it's the centre versus Corbyn and Trump, you know, Corbyn and Brexit. And they are both our enemy. And we can work with David Cameron, the Ken Clarks of this world, the liberal Tories, they're our allies. And they're two very different ideas. And Blair was very much in the latter camp. And I think that tells you something, you know, it tells you something about how you see the world and the challenges today. And actually, what Keir Starmer is, I think, is not that. I think Keir Starmer disagrees. And and I thought it was interesting at the Future of Britain conference that Keir Starmer purposely said to Blair on stage, where I disagree with you, Tony, is on your idea that this is a moment of the centre. And Starmer said, I think it's a moment of the left. One place where I do take issue with Tony. The idea that this is somehow beyond left and right. No, for me, this is a progressive moment. Because on the right, all I see is retreat. Retreat from the world. Retreat from the battle of ideas. Retreat from the necessary fight against their dangerous fringe. And I think that is actually true Starmer. I think that's what he believes. That's where he thinks Blair was wrong. Starmer did not vote for David Miliband in 2010. I'm pretty sure he voted for Ed Ed Miliband. That, again, is a revealing insight into the instincts of Keir Starmer. So they think about things. It's not just that the conditions are different, I think, but actually I think Starmer is a very different leader, even though he is 
aligning himself at least not imaginatively but in image in image wise no i think you can see that in rachel reeves position too and the securonomics agenda which is pretty self-consciously an attempt at imitating Biden administration and using the energy transition energy revolution whatever you want to call it as the the driver of growth and also of increased economic security in a geopolitically fought world because obviously the other thing which we've talked about in other contexts but not so explicitly here is is that this world that we're living in is so much more geopolitically competitive than the one in which new labor came about but i think then that's the tension both because it's not so clear quite how a british government can do the kind of things that an american government can do but also because if part of starmer is leaning into blair then the securonomics agenda Rachel Reeves goes in a really rather different direction. That is much more the Democratic Party in the United States response to 2016, which is to say that we are going to have an industrial strategy, a green industrial strategy as a bulwark against a future Trump-style presidency. And then the Blair way is, as you said, is actually just saying, no, we're going to actually double down on the technocratic centre. We're going to bin the populist parts out of it. The only thing I can see where there's kind of a little bit of an exception coming out of the Blair line on it is actually on the climate change issue, where I think you can see from some of the things that Blair said, I think there was an interview where he's basically sort of saying we shouldn't become too obsessed with net zero. <laughs> and Isn't this just the conservative side of, of Blair coming out? When he talks about radical but effective, he just tends to mean effective. Well, I think also it comes back to that moment that I alluded to earlier in the conversation, um, which was the the one thing that really was a problem just for a few days for Blair in that height of his height of Blairdom. Yeah, <laughs> um, which was in September of two thousand, so a year before nine eleven, um, when you basically had lorry drivers blocking picketing whatever you want to call it oil terminals and oil refineries yeah about the increase in the fuel price tax and this had been a essentially something called the fuel price escalator which had basically i think had been introduced by the major government in 1993 as a climate change measure whereby there would be a fixed increase in the fuel taxes above the rate of Inflation. Still officially with us, although it never happens anymore. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the, the Blair government was going to increase it from like 5% to 6% or something like that. And it happened to be at a time in which there was a, it, it wasn't a big hike in the price of oil, but it was a rise in the price of oil. So it meant it, it was going to mean that petrol and diesel were going to cost more than they yeah. would otherwise have done with the. And for a few days, I remember it quite well. I mean, the country was quite paralyzed. Um, you had a situation where I think the NHS was put on emergency alert. There was rationing at supermarkets. The government was deploying military tankers to try to get petrol and diesel to petrol stations. And it all came to an end quite quickly too. But it was the one point where in that first premiership where Blair didn't seem in control 
of anything. The Conservatives, I think it was the only time in that entire four years in the first term where they had briefly an opinion poll leading. And it was tied to the question of cars and it was tied to the question about using taxes to try to change people's behaviour in relation to climate change. And I think it's not perhaps a coincidence then that Blair dissents a bit on the technocratic version of new of net zero over this issue. I was going to say that the fuel price escalator is a technocratic solution to a policy dilemma, uh, you know, how climate change, but it, it runs into real life. You know, you saw it the same with the Gilets jaunes, didn't you, in, in, in France? It's a very similar. It, it, sounds, it sounds remarkably similar in a way. And maybe it's like a, you know, a little flash of real politics in this period between 97 and 2007. I think Blair said it himself at the, um, at the Future of Britain conference with Keir Starmer, where he said, look, I inherited 2% growth a year baked in. And he, and he had that for his entire premiership, roughly speaking. And that makes life a lot easier, right? You know, Keir Starmer doesn't have that. So Blair himself sees the differences between his own period and Keir, and, and Keir Starmer's period. And I think, but, but they do then take, even though they're together and they're one is anointing the other in a way, it's for different reasons. I think Blair said something like, Keir Starmer is trying to do what I did, or what not just Blair did, but I think Blair said, Keir Starmer is trying to do what Kinnock, Smith and Blair did over a period of 10 years in the space of one parliament. That's how he sees it, the frame of taking the party from the left to the centre and offering sensible technocratic solutions to real problems. You know, that's how he would see it. But again, where is the populist element that connects connects with people? Well, I think that this is where the securonomics is supposed to come into it. And that's where I think there is this tension. Right. Because I think that that's the bit that actually doesn't at all fit into seeing where Labour is now under the trying to do new labour. I think you could say that Blair's framing, as you described it then, m- m- might fit in terms of like changing the internal politics of the Labour Party. Oh, yeah. And changing the balance. With That's the where he's the heir. Yeah. But this stuff is really different. But then the interesting question becomes, well, if the securonomics is actually pretty hard to do for a country like Britain when you're not the world's you know, most powerful state, you don't have the same economic options. You've got hard questions to do about how you do this in relation to the what the European Union's um, doing. If that runs into difficulties, then is some version of like Blairism detached as in many ways as it is from all the political changes in the world that have taken place and in Britain? Is that what comes and tries to fill the space? Yeah, and and if you're the expression of the British people, or whatever the phrase was that that New Labour was supposed to be, as if as if you know it has one one voice that says one thing. You know, what is that voice telling us today? Not- it's supposed to be the political arm, none other than the British people. Oh right, yeah. So what what does that arm do today when it comes to these questions that have completely changed since ninety seven? So what does it do about Brexit? Today? Well, also or the, the British people is, is obviously, even though he's saying this in 97 in a context in which he's saying there's going to be referendums for devolution in Scotland and Wales, he still thinks the idea of the British people can be taken for 
granted that's also not possible any longer yeah the four 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 nations all with seemingly different voices and on the central questions of those instincts that he i mean he he would say i think about today and one of his technocratic solutions is digital id cards you know and and health having your health record stored online so these are technocratic solutions that he is in favor of and says you cannot have a modern state without a digital id and storing your health records online and this is actually the same really it's the same as what he was saying in government where he was supporting id cards and couldn't get that through and what would he say and what would all of his advisors said at the time was look at any opinion poll this is supported by the british public the british public are not libertarians they don't care about those things they're actually fine with it particularly when it comes to things like immigration so blair i'm always struck by blair really hasn't changed well i think it's more than that i think that this is the really odd thing here is is that the mantra is always about applying constant values that he thinks are around some notion of like social justice in a changing world but the problem is that his notion of the world never changes and even when the world completely changes itself you said so he is that that going back to the start that strand of prophetic i can see the future is Britain in Europe as a modern state with reformed institutions, reformed House of Lords, all of those things. That doesn't change even when Britain leaves the European Union. The future is still Britain in Europe, the same kind of ideas. And also I think that's true about the, the technology, which is a constant you know, theme, a, a, a change into technology. But even if we just take that on its own terms, adapting to technology in the 1990s and adapting to technology in an age of artificial intelligence are just really very different, yeah, what, really, what really very different propositions. And it's in some sense, I think that he needs the idea, the, just the idea detached in some sense from any material realities in the world of change, because it's, it's the sense of like you apply a combination of personal charismatic and technocratic energy at a world that's changing. But yeah. actually, it's the idea of you in relation to that change that matters yeah. more than actual any actual material analysis of the world that is changing. That's fascinating. I think as Blair continues to influence British politics and actually global politics, it's talking about the last imperial, last Britain's last imperialist. You know, he is influential in Africa himself personally through his institute. So we should continue to turn to Blair in future episodes. Thanks for listening to These Times. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do, please like and share with your friends and family. And of course, subscribe. These Times is produced by Ewan Daughtry. We also wanted to put a shout out for any questions that you have that you would like Helen or myself to answer. So if you have any questions about British, European, American politics that you think we might have some insight, please do get in touch on our email or Twitter and we will do our best to answer them in future episodes. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.